I think we need a bit of a recap as we start today's sermon, which is entitled, Humbled by the Most High God. Humbled by the Most High God, we're looking at the whole of Daniel chapter 4, but we really do need a recap to, to try and get some kind of understanding of the the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 2, for example, the, the, dream, uh, the, the king, he had a, tr- a dream that troubled his spirit. In that dream in chapter 2, the king saw an image that was set up and um, it was an, uh, the head of the image was made of gold and the chest and the arms were made of silver The belly and the thighs were made of bronze and then the lower legs were made of iron and the feet were made of iron and clay. Not a very good mixture of that iron and clay, not a very strong mixture. None of his wise men could tell him what the dream was or give him the interpretation. He made it difficult for them. He wouldn't even tell them what the dream was and I for one, I'm not entirely sure whether that was a deliberate ploy on his part or he'd forgotten the dream. But they they wanted to know what the dream was before giving the interpretation or making up an interpretation, perhaps. Anyway, finally, Daniel was called and uh, he's he was asked to say what the dream was, give the interpretation, and uh, he did. After praying about it, he went off, he prayed to God. God told him what the dream was. God told him the interpretation. He went back to the king. Nebuchadnezzar, and explained that the head of gold is him and his kingdom, the king of Babylon. The chest and the arms of silver would be the next kingdom, which we can know from chapter 5 of this book of Daniel, would be the Medes and the Persians, and history will tell us tell us that as well. And then the, the belly and the thighs which followed the Medes and the Persians, well, that's the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. And then finally, you've got the lower legs of iron, and that's the Roman Empire, and the feet of iron and clay, not a very strong mixture, and their various kingdoms that sprung from the Roman Empire, they weren't very sound, and uh, eventually, an important, the most important part that I missed was a stone that was not made with hands. This was all seen in the dream. A stone that was not made with hands was cast at the foot of the image and it broke it into smithereens. And just like the chaff, the chaff on a threshing floor, it just all came to nothing and blew away in the wind. Well, that stone not made with hands represents an everlasting kingdom. And we can know from the scriptures that as is, that, is, that that represents the Lord Jesus Christ, whose kingdom stands forever. It's a great comfort to me, especially in the times we live, because that dream of King Nebuchadnezzar, it tells us that the kingdoms of this world, they rise and they fall. We've seen it all through history. And if we're observing the news at the moment, I said it the other week, it would seem, at any rate, that the... The great American empire is on the decline at this time. Other empires are rising, most notably communist China, and so it goes on. 
do you know, in a sense, it, none of that bothers me because I know that the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom shall stand forever. And I, for one, as a Christian trusting in Jesus, I am a citizen of that kingdom. And so are the other Christians in here, having trusted in Christ as their saviour and their Lord. He is also their king, king of kings and lord of lords. So that's um, King Nebuchadnezzar. Despite all of that, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, he acknowledged the power of Almighty God to reveal dreams. He could see that uh, the God of Daniel had the power to reveal dreams, the secret things. But nevertheless, Almighty God was still the God of Daniel. Remember that King Nebuchadnezzar, he was a pagan and he worshipped the gods of Babylon. And for him, the God who revealed that dream was Daniel's God. And then in chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar, he set up a 90-foot high golden image. An image of one of his gods. And at the sound of a certain music, everyone in the kingdom, everyone in the earth, it would seem, was ordered to bow down and worship the image, that 90 foot high image. And three men, three companions of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, three godly men, they refused to bow down and worship that idol. So the king, he warned them, if you don't bow down and worship it, you will be cast into a fiery furnace, heated up seven times more than it would normally be heated. Still, they didn't worship that image and they were cast into the fiery furnace. It was so hot that the soldiers who threw those three young men into the fire, they died from the heat just from throwing Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego into the fire. Anyway, the king, he noticed that there were four people in the fire. One was like the Son of God. Well, I wonder who that might have been. Not three, but four. Furthermore, those three young men came out of the fire completely unscathed, unharmed by the fire. And on that occasion, the king, he acknowledged to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego that their God was a God who was able to deliver them from the fiery furnace. So, this is why I'm giving you all this recap. King Nebuchadnezzar, the idolater, worships all these pagan gods, idols which are nothing. He nevertheless acknowledged that the God of Daniel was able to deliver, um, to, to reveal secrets, the secret things, to reveal his dream. And he also acknowledged to Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego that their God who's the God of Daniel, presumably, was able to deliver them from the fiery furnace. But it's, it's, it's all the while it's, the, the one true God was not, he, Nebuchadnezzar was not owning him as his God. We shall now see in chapter four, the Lord, almighty God, abasing or bringing low King Nebuchadnezzar, so much so that that proud and boastful king was reduced to eating grass like an ox 
until such time his reason or his sanity returned to him and he praised and honoured the king of heaven according to chapter 4 and verse 37. Let's have a look at it right now. Chapter uh, chapter 4 verse 37. The last verse of the chapter. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. You'd have to ask, is that more of the same lip service to God from an unsaved and idolatrous pagan king? Perhaps it's time to have a look at chapter 4. First of all, there's a greeting from King Nebuchadnezzar, although you might be excused for thinking that it was a greeting from the Apostle Paul. First of all, look at it. Chapter 4 and verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, unto all people, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied unto you. Then in verses 2 and 3, the king declared his willingness, his eagerness to proclaim the great things that God, whose kingdom is everlasting, has done towards him. Straight away, dear Christian, you might want to ask yourself whether you have that kind of enthusiasm that we see coming from King Nebuchadnezzar in verses 2 and 3. An enthusiasm to bear testimony of the mighty works that God has done towards you and in you. As shall be seen later, the same desire to proclaim and exalt the only true God can be seen from King Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning of chapter, that can be seen at the beginning of chapter 4, can also be seen in the final verses of this chapter. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar had yet another dream, the details of which are narrated by who? None other than King Nebuchadnezzar himself all the way from verse 4 to verse 18. Look how it starts. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. And then all the way through to verse 18, he explains what happens. King Nebuchadnezzar explains. I find it very noteworthy that in the first three verses of chapter 4, it is King Nebuchadnezzar who opens the chapter with a greeting, no less, and with praise to God. Then in the next 15 verses, it is King Nebuchadnezzar who gives details of a dream that he had. And then in the final four verses, the king praises God. You most certainly will not find Pharaoh of Egypt doing all those things anywhere in the Bible. But we see it with King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar explains events as they had previously been, possibly more than seven years earlier, when as a proud and boastful tyrant, he had the dream which we shall very soon consider. If you glance over to verse 30, to when Daniel was giving the king the interpretation of his dream, as Daniel had received it from God, you'll see just how full of himself the king still was at that particular time. 
And remember, we're going back uh, perhaps eight years now. Look at verse 30. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honour of my majesty? Talk about blowing your own trumpet. We see it big time in verse 30 there. A very proud and boastful king. At first, it can be seen in verses six and through six and seven that the king summoned all his wise men to him. He gave them details of the dream on this occasion. Nevertheless, they were unable to interpret his dream. Only in verse eight do we read, "But at last, Daniel came in before me." As for the dream itself, according to verses ten through to verse 17 according to the account given by King Nebuchadnezzar to us the king saw a tree of great height one that could be seen from everywhere in the earth the birds lived among the branches and the beasts had shadow under it there was enough fruit on the tree for everyone a holy one an angel came down from heaven and said cut down the tree but leave the stump bound with a metal band and with its roots in the ground, surrounded by tender grass. Now let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field. As such, even though that magnificent tree was brought low, it was not altogether destroyed. In verse 16, King Nebuchadnezzar said that in his dream, the tree stump had a man's heart and it was replaced with a beast's heart. I like what the Bible commentator, John Gill, said about verse 16. He said, Let a beast's heart be given unto him from a human heart. Let it be changed into a brutal one. Let him be deprived of the use of reason and have no more exercise of it than a brute has. Let him be wholly governed by the animal senses, and behave and act as a beast does. That's what Gill says about verse 16, where we read there, let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, that's unto the king, and let seven times pass over him. And verse 17 there, this matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. The stump was to remain in the field with the beast for seven times in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. The period of seven times that the stump remained in the field, that seven times, there's quite a bit of discussion as to what it actually means. It's believed to mean seven years. It doesn't really matter, to be quite honest. We don't need to know exactly how long. Suffice to say that for a period of time, perhaps seven years, the king 
He was like a, a, a tree stump with its roots in the ground and he was wet with the dew of heaven and he was like eating grass like the oxes in the field, the oxen in the field. That great tree was none other than King Nebuchadnezzar. As for all the birds living amongst the branches and the beasts in the shadows of the tree, they represented the greatness of his kingdom, that his dominion was to the end of all the earth. The dream foretold that the king would be brought low by God and that he would, as I say, live like an ox in the field until such time he came to know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and the king, uh, and that God giveth it to whomsoever he will. That's something for us to remember in our day and age. With all that's going on in the world, all the diplomacy or the breakdown in diplomacy and um, what we see on the international stage, it's good to know and to remember that God reigns. that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men. Back in chapter 2, verse 48, King Nebuchadnezzar had promoted Daniel to be ruler of the whole province of Babylon. So one might reasonably say that Daniel was in the king's trusted inner circle. Also, Daniel was over all the wise men of Babylon. As such, he it's reasonable to say he would have been the, the king's chief counsellor, the king's chief advisor. He was the only one who was able to give interpretations of dreams to the king. And he'd been promoted to the very top. Even so, it would have taken quite a lot of courage for Daniel to tell the king that he was going to be brought low by God and that he was going to be reduced to nothing more than a beast eating grass in a field. Not only did Daniel deliver that interpretation to a proud and tyrannical king, but also he delivered to him a message of repentance. Just have a look at verse 27 there. This is after telling Daniel, this is after Daniel told the king the interpretation of the dream that he had, and then in verse 27, Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee and break off thy sins. Can you imagine saying that to the king of Babylon? Break off thy sins by righteousness and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. Daniel was in effect telling the most powerful man in the world and not a nice man at that You know, he really was a tyrant. Even so, Daniel told him to stop sinning, to follow righteousness and to show mercy to the poor. Again, that would have required a considerable amount of holy boldness and faithfulness to God. On a personal level, I used to be rather selective. I remember this most of all when I was a a London City missionary. I used to be selective about whom I spoke to on the subject of forgiveness for sins and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I can remember when I used to stand on a soapbox in Covent Garden in central London 
belting out the gospel message. And, or, and if one of my companions was on the soapbox, I'd be there giving out tracts. But I'd be selective about who I gave a tract to. If someone looked important, and there were some important people walking around in that part of London, if someone looked important, I might turn the other way. And then there were parts of London, the, the rougher parts of London, that if someone looked rather aggressive, I might, again, I might look the other way. Instead of talk to that person about repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I might look the other way instead of handing that person uh, a Bible, uh, a gospel leaflet. My fearfulness, or at the very least, my apprehension about witnessing to certain people shamed me, it troubled me to the extent that I prayed for deliverance from being selective like that. And I would like to think that if I had occasion to meet Her Majesty the Queen, I would use that opportunity to talk to her about Jesus. I mean that most sincerely. That was part of my prayer. Dear Christian, if you are selective about whom you speak to about Jesus, then perhaps you too might also consider praying that you would be faithful, that you would be bold with a holy boldness when opportunities arise for you to witness to other people, whoever they might be, from the least of them to the greatest, from the meekest to the meanest, that you would not be selective about who you talk to about repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's have a look at verses 29 through to 31. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, here we go again with his blowing his trumpet, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honour of my majesty. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. A whole year had passed by after king Nebuchadnezzar received from Daniel that the interpretation of that dream about being brought low for a period of time and that message from Daniel to repent and pursue righteousness, even so, the king was still heaping praise on himself. How different that is to what another king said about 500 years earlier, King David of Israel, when he said, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Beautiful words from Daniel. 1 Chronicles chapter 29 verse 11. Words to learn, lovely words, all about God. He was, Daniel was blowing God's trumpet there and not his own trumpet. Sorry, not Daniel, David was. K 
Coming back to the proud and boastful king of Babylon, everything happened in accordance with what Daniel had said. Nebuchadnezzar spent the next seven years, or whatever the allotted time was, chewing grass like an ox, along with the other beasts of the field. And so, until such time, he knew that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives to whosoever he wants to. But finally, in accordance with God's mercy, King Nebuchadnezzar looked up to heaven. His sanity was restored and he blessed, he praised, he extolled and he honoured the King of heaven. As it is written in verses 34 through to 36, at the end of the days, Thus, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honoured him that liveth for ever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time my reason, a sanity, returned unto me. And for the glory of my kingdom, mine honour and brightness returned unto me. And my counsellors and my lords sought unto me. And I was established in my kingdom an excellent majesty was added unto me, added unto me by God. Then in verse 37, we see the very last words of King Nebuchadnezzar in the whole Bible. Isn't that amazing? Look at verse 37 again. And this is the last we hear from the king. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. When you consider how King Nebuchadnezzar started chapter 4 with his warm greeting, and how he finished it praising God, I like what the Baptist minister of old, Dr. Graham Scroggy, had to say about the king. He said, the last thing related of him is the humble public confession which he made and the noble testimony to the true God, which for the benefit of all men he delivered in the edict contained in this chapter. With the restoration of his reason and kingdom came the regeneration of his soul. Not sure about that, but I'll carry on. There is nothing in this book more sublime than this testimony of Nebuchadnezzar's to him light came at eventide, and he turned his throne into a pulpit, and his state papers into sermons, that his erring subjects might learn the wonders of omnipotence, be led to honour the Most High, and have peace multiplied unto them through his name. Nebuchadnezzar's testimony is the political message for all earth's kings and rulers until Christ shall come. God rules. This is the king's final message to the world. Those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. As we finish, Dr. Scroggy 
along with others, was of the firm opinion that King Nebuchadnezzar was cut saved in that he was converted to Christ. Then there were others who were not of that opinion. For example, John Calvin concluded that the king was not brought to true heart repentance. Maybe King Nebuchadnezzar was saved from his sins by the grace of God. Maybe he wasn't. I really don't know. But what I can say by way of application to us is that a child of God is someone whom God has brought low. And that loneliness is seen in godly sorrow and repentance towards a holy and righteous God. I am speaking about a truly born-again Christian. If you really are a child of God, God has brought you low. And you, he has brought you low with a godly sorrow, a repentance, and you have seen the, the power of God, his righteousness, his holiness, and his love for sinners, such as yourself. The child of God is someone who has come to recognise and acknowledge that if it were not for the grace of God towards him, he would be without a hope that reaches up to heaven. He would be condemned to everlasting punishment in hellfire because of his sins, like everyone in this world who is not trusting in Jesus. He knows only too well that in him, that is in his flesh, dwells no good thing, that he has no merit of his own. I cannot stand before God and say, I, aren't I a good one? I, I knew that you would let me into heaven. It stands to reason, because I'm Mr. Wonderful. None of all that. None of blowing your own trumpet. None whatsoever. Nothing in your hand you bring. You bring only to the cross of Christ. You cling it's all about Jesus, isn't it? As you not so much stand before God, you're flat on your belly before, before God, acknowledging his holiness and his righteousness. Something that this world does not want to do. Something that this world refuses to do. Instead, the world waves its puny fist towards heaven. But the day will come when Jesus comes in judgment and every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. The child of God knows only too well that Jesus has paid the penalty for his sins in full. Every sin has been laid upon Jesus at the cross. And that perfect obedience of Jesus throughout his life is reckoned to his account. Again, you cannot stand before God and say, well, I helped old ladies across the road. You, there's none of that. It counts for nothing. It's all about what Jesus has done in his life and in his death at the cross. Therefore, a born-again Christian is someone who most certainly does not exalt himself 
All of those vain things have gone. As a new creature in Christ, he is more likely to say, guilty, vile and helpless me. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Far from blowing his own trumpet like King Nebuchadnezzar did, or like the Pharisee in the following parable of Jesus did, he is more likely to be like the tax collector in the following parable of Jesus. The tax collector who simply pleaded to God for mercy. And I'll finish with that parable now, that parable of Jesus. I'll read it to you in Luke chapter 18. We've finished with Romans, uh, with Daniel chapter 4. Luke chapter 18. And listen to this parable of Jesus. You've got the Pharisee who exalts himself. He literally stands in the temple blowing his own trumpet and then look at the tax collector called the publican in the King James Version here. I'm going to read Luke chapter 18, verse 10 through to 14. And this really sums up this world. You're in one of two camps here and you decide for yourself what camp you are in. Luke 18, chapter 10, uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, that's a religious Jew, and the other a publican. Again, it's just a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. So who's he actually praying to there? Thus with himself. It sounds like he's talking to himself actually, listening to his own voice. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now we come to the publican, the tax collector. Verse 13. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast. He beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, brought low, Indeed, if you never repent, if you never show repentance and faith in Jesus, you will be brought low. However low hell is, you will be brought there. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted, shall be raised up, set upon a rock whose name is Jesus, and ultimately taken up to be with Jesus in heavenly glory. It really is as simple as that. It's a very profound message, isn't it? But it's a very simple message. Again, what camp are you in, dear whoever you are in here? Blow my own trumpet um, camp? Aren't I wonderful? I don't really believe in heaven, but okay, if there is a heaven, I'll be there. You can be sure of that. Because I'm not like all these other people, murderers and all the rest of them. I've never done, okay, I've lied a few times, quite a lot actually, 
I sometimes get angry because I'm in a bad mood for no reason. Stolen a few things in my time. From the office, perhaps. Perk of the job, isn't it? Use the phone at work for private calls. Spent time on Facebook at work when I should have been working. Not really stealing, is it? I've done all things wrong. But okay, but still, I'm a good guy. Are you one of them? Or are you like the tax collector who couldn't even look up to heaven? He just said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he went home justified before God. Boasting about who you are, what you have achieved, are things that the world loves to do. However, infinitely better is when you boast, because there is a time for boasting, but may your boast be about the Son of God who loved you and who gave himself for you at the cross. And to God be the glory. Amen.